Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Some 200 years after her death, Jane Austen's novels are still widely read. Film adaptations are regularly appear, and uh, fans are uh, enjoying spin-offs such as Lost in Austin and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, many others. We're going to continue our series today, Our Favorite Books, with Jane Austen. We're going to ask you to uh, join the program to talk about your favorite book, your favorite passage or film. We'll talk about the enduring popularity. Jane Austen is, uh, well, more popular than she was in her time, and... Uh, and uh, more popular perhaps than at any time in the past 200 years. So what does she stand for now? What about Austin in her time? And uh, we're going to talk about this with uh, two English professors from uh, Department of English at Utah State University. We welcome into our studio Maddie Burkert, Assistant Professor of English at USU. Thanks for coming in. We also welcome back to the program Brian McCuskey, Associate Professor of English at USU. Thanks. Great to be here. So uh, let's, uh, before we talk about some history, and uh, we'll read some passages, we'll hear some, uh, some clips and trailers from uh, films, and we're asking you uh, to name your favorite passage or book or uh, film, what Austin means to you, um, and here's how you reach us. Uh, telephone is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Um, I want to talk about the enduring uh, popularity. These, uh, Jane Austen, one of a handful of authors, who is, continues at a fever pitch in popularity. So, uh, Matty Burkert, what, what do you think? Why? Why is that? Well, I am completely fascinated by this question. When I teach Jane Austen, people people see it as a highlight of any any given course because um, even if they haven't read Austen before, the idea of reading Austen is in, inherently very appealing. Um, and it's hard to know exactly why, um, but I think one of the really inventive ways of asking that question was uh, the Folger Shakespeare Library just recently did an exhibition last year called Will and Jane, uh, Shakespeare Austin and the Cult of Celebrity. And they looked at how there were these events that happened really hundreds of years after um, the the authors had um, written that propelled them forward. And so they, they date the Renaissance and Jane Austen to um, the 1995 BBC Pride and Prejudice miniseries. Mm. Uh, and they actually featured in that exhibition um, the T-shirt that Colin Firth famously wore in the lake as Darcy and said it was very unusual to see sort of gaggles of fans around the around the lobby of the Folger Shakespeare Library. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that's part of it. Yeah. And I was, so Brian McCuskey, is, is this part of this is women swooning, right? Over there Colin Firth. There is a fair amount of women but, but, swooning over Colin Firth. Yeah. But Colin Firth is playing a very compelling character. Mr. It's Darcy. true. Yeah. I mean, when I, tell people uh, very much against their will next to me on the airplane what I do for a living. <laughs> I say 19, I teach 19th century British literature, and I often get a kind of blank stare. And then I say Jane Austen, and the, 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 my seatmate will always light right up, usually because of Colin Firth. Um, and then if you talk a little bit more about Jane Austen, or if I talk at them, is really what happens on the plane, it becomes clear that Austin represents for people, at least on one level, a kind of fantasy of, of leisure time and comfort and stability, you know, when, when the worst thing that could happen in your day was that you got a little mud on your petticoats mm. or somebody looked at you funny uh, across a crowded ballroom. And so that's the kind of um, BBC version, I guess, of Jane Austen that is being sold and marketed right now. Mm. But uh, as Maddie and I will tell you, there's a lot going on beneath the surface of Jane Austen that's much mm. more uh, dark and complicated. Okay, let's yeah, we'll we'll definitely get there because uh, uh, that I think um, in some respects Jane Austen maybe would not approve of uh, of a view of her novels as as being sanitized and. And no, certain, uncomplicated. Certainly not. In fact, she hated romance novels. Mm. She, uh, as a teenager, even at a time of, of life when most people are avidly consuming romance and fantasy novels, she was writing parodies of of romance fiction. She was making fun of people that read gothic romance that like all that soap opera stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
one of my favorite Austen novels is Northanger Abbey, which isn't necessarily read as often as, say, Pride and Prejudice, but uh, is this extended satire of the Gothic novel at the time, which was sort of what we would think of as as a mixture of sort of a romance novel and a horror novel with a damsel in distress whisked away to a castle where she was locked up by an evil uh, distant uncle and found missing letters and, and keys and clues to crimes. And in the end, it's it's Scooby-Doo and it was mm. nothing supernatural yeah. was going on at all. Right. <laughs> Here's a, a, yeah. a passage, actually. Um, when she was a teenager, she wrote a number of these satirical novels. And just to give you a kind of flavor of what she's making fun of, this is from uh, a short novella she wrote called Love and Friendship. And you don't need to know anything about the plot other than it's just full of hysterical outpourings of emotion. Like this one, she was all sensibility and feeling. We flew into each other's arms after having exchanged vows of mutual friendship for the rest of our lives, instantly unfolded to each other the most inward secrets of our hearts. We fainted alternately on a sofa. (laughs) (laughs) So the whole idea that you come to Jane Austen looking for a romance plot, Mm -hmm. uh, she would have just been appalled. Yeah. And yet, in many people's minds, that's how they enjoy her, don't they? Maybe it's it's the romance. Well, I think that... I think that hooks you in. But then I Mm -hmm. I think what keeps you coming is the way that she looks underneath the surface of what seem like the most banal interactions. Who is pouring whose tea? Who is playing cards with whom? And uh, and shows that these are really loaded, really complicated social dances that have really high stakes, particularly for, in her novels, um, young women whose entire economic future rests on marrying eligibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the high stakes that maybe we don't completely understand in today's world but uh, uh, so let's hear let's hear a clip I want to get into this uh, people um, getting lost in Austin so that's the title of this <laughs> of this film right I don't know if it turned into a miniseries but it uh, it's a film anyway uh, so let's hear this is a trailer to uh, lost in Austin the the plot is a, a young woman in uh, in the United Kingdom um, starts having uh, characters from Austin's novels appear uh, to her. She, she kind of gets lost in that world. Let's hear this. Amanda's life lacked romance. Is this you proposing to me? I just want to read my book. Until a visitor changed everything. You are a character in a book. I am Elizabeth's father. Sir, you're Kitty and Mary. I've read so much about you. Read? Heard. Oh. Are we live on cable? What are you after? Girl on girl action under the covers. Now she's living in her favourite book. Darcy, you are not what you seem. I can't disagree with that. I shall marry him. You don't get to marry Darcy. And turning the fictional world upside down. After dinner, you must play for us at the piano. Whenever life is getting me down, I shall be sure to go downtown. Please don't allow any of them to marry Mr. Collins. Is this an extra entertainment we have laid on? You led me to suppose that Mr. Bingley loved me. Lydia doesn't run off with Bingley. I've buggered up this story and now I have to unbugger it. He is in love with you. That doesn't make sense. Having a bit of a strange postmodern moment. Is that agreeable? Oh, yes. I consider our lives and I find I prefer your version. I have been blinded by pride. Hear that sound? That's Jane Austen spinning in her grave. So there's the trailer to uh, Lost in Austen. And so that's, you know, that's fantasy. And I think probably a lot of readers and consumers of the, the films have that fantasy. This is why this is a, a popular film, to get lost in that world. Well, it's going to be no surprise that a couple of English professors maybe don't agree with the central premise of that film, which <laughs> is that the world of Jane Austen is very staid and comfortable and orderly, and it takes a you know 200 years later uh young woman to time travel back into that period in order to cause mayhem and ruckus and chaos the truth of the matter is that the mayhem the ruckus and the chaos are in the novels already it's just all beneath the surface of these um 
much more restrained social interactions that Maddie was describing. Mm -hmm. So if you know where to look in Jane Austen when you're reading, you'll find violence, you'll find sex, you'll find conflict, you'll find um, political strife. You'll find these things. Uh, you don't have to time travel, uh, you know, our world of mayhem or import it back onto that world in order to, to do that. Mm. Uh, maybe example. Well, for example, what's your favorite example, Maddie? What would you well, say? Well, any time somebody runs off with a young man of dubious principles and ends up unhappily married in the city. Well, because the country is the place of all things good in most of Austin. That's right. Um, so to run off with a not very respectable young man to London and shock everybody that you know. Um, for and, and to run yeah. off because that's your best option yeah, at absolutely. that point. Um, yeah. One of the... F- you know, one of my favorite characters is the very silly Mrs. Bennett from Pride and Prejudice. She's the mother of Elizabeth. And everyone makes fun of Mrs. Bennett. And in the BBC production, she's, you know, portrayed as sort of insane. Um, because all she cares about is getting her daughters married. And she runs around like a crazy lady, uh, insisting that they introduce themselves to the new neighbor, uh, Mr. Bingley. But actually, she's the only one who's seen clearly in the situation. She has got to find eligible husbands for her her daughters or her daughters will end up like Jane Austen herself did dependent on uh, limited family resources and uh, living a a sort of secluded unhappy life as a spinster not that Jane Austen was unhappy Mm -hmm. but that's what Mrs. Bennett fears right so the stakes are enormous here Um, it's not just about will you find your dream match it's about will you be able to survive uh, much past your 20s Yeah, and she's really navigating a a bit of a cutthroat world. And when she says, you know, um, that Mr. Bingley or (laughs) Mr. Bennett, her husband, um, needs to go over and introduce himself to the Bingleys um, early when they move in, that's an important social thing to do. Without that initial introduction, her daughters can't interact with the family at social events at parties and so he he has to do his duty as a father to open up those um interactions for for his daughters and so her horror at the idea that he wouldn't do it i mean he's sort of cruelly teasing her that he's not going to do this this is this is an abdication of his responsibility if he doesn't do it she's actually absolutely right when she says that this is your responsibility and you're going to be doing badly by your daughters if you don't make this move Mm. she's the only one that gets that really this is all the hunger games right (laughs) this is not just about picnics and tea parties and uh, and who you can introduce yourself to and who you can't it's it's a um a world in which uh the stakes are extremely high and if she doesn't play her cards right uh if she doesn't make these moves if she doesn't think ahead on the chessboard um then her family is going to be in serious financial trouble yeah and so if you if you see it that way uh mr bennett is the irresponsible one right he's Absolutely. Everyone thinks he's so cool because he gets all the good lines. Yeah. Like he tells his wife, I'm afraid I have not the pleasure of understanding you. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's actually an extremely self-absorbed, narcissistic um, um, shut-in, basically, who uh, is not looking out for his family. Yeah, that's one of the things that Elizabeth has to come to realize over the course of the novel. She really identifies with her father. Um, they're both the cleverest people in their family. They have all the good one-liners, as Brian was saying. Um, they like to have a lot of fun at the family's expense, um, just the two of them. But she comes to realize that, um, for example, in the case of her younger sisters, he didn't he didn't make sure that they were on the right path. And that's how uh, the younger sisters end up in so much trouble. And so one of the things she has to come to realize is that her father and his wit at everyone else's expense actually isn't a great model of how to get along in the world and, and be successful and happy. Mm-hmm. It's the tight, I mean, uh, to mix metaphors here from the Hunger Games to Titanic, the, mm-hmm. the opening of Pride and Prejudice is a ship going down. Mm-hmm. This family is going down. And the only person who's trying at all to steer it is, is the apparently ridiculous Mrs. Bennett. Mm-hmm. Are there, um, let's take a break first, and we want to come back. I want to get into a little bit of uh, Austin herself, and then perhaps issues that she's working out from her, we can detect from her personal life in, in her novels, and of course the world uh, around her. Um, and I want to have some uh, passages as well. I want to talk about the, the, the humor. That's what, one of the things that draws me to, to Austin, to the novels especially. Um, it, it, it can be very biting. Um, humor, but it, just for one example, uh, her uh, hypochondriacs are, are hilarious. In Persuasion, the, the sister Mary is uh, 
is always sickly, except when she wants to go on walks and, and such. You know, she it comes and goes. Yeah, and what you need to remember is, again, the silliest characters in Austin are the only ones that really know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Those hypochondriacs are hypochondriacs because there is no penicillin. If you get a sore throat, to us it seems silly that you would actually live in mortal terror mm-hmm. uh, and and stay home because you have a little bit of a sore throat. But this is how people died mm-hmm. back at the time. And so they're actually not that, uh, they're not overreacting that much. Mm. Yeah, but it raises the good question, which is, um, as you said about about Austin's own humor, um, for she makes a lot of of fun at their expense, even as she lets you see that they're quite sensible in important ways. Um, but she embeds characters in her novels who like her, like Elizabeth Bennet, like Mary Crawford, uh, in Mansfield Park, like to have fun at other people's expense, but. In her novels, she often chastens or punishes, to some extent, people who do what she does, which is make fun of people a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah, so that she's uh, maybe uh, trying to correct herself. I don't know. Yeah, could could be. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, we will uh, talk more about Jane Austen. We're continuing our series, our favorite books. We're uh, talking about Jane Austen today. Uh, She died in 1817, right? So uh, 200 years later. And we're talking about her enduring popularity. We'll get back to talking about her, uh, the, the author herself and uh, how she was viewed in her time. And uh, get back to talking about what does she stand for now. We want to know what your favorite Austin book is, what your favorite passage is, maybe your favorite film or film adaptation. The list goes on and on. I just made a short list here. I discovered I've been watching some uh, Hallmark romances. And so I discovered one that's called Sense and Sensibility, so S-C-E-N-T-S. And it's about the, the two Dashwood sisters who inherit the family perfume business. <laughs> so it's and it, it's not very good. I don't recommend it, but it's just pretty mediocre. You're not but, suggesting uh, we put that on our syllabus? <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. Not this one, no. Okay. There's another one called Walking Mr. Darcy. And so it's Pride and Prejudice set in the world of dog shows. And... Uh, <laughs> And that one's a little bit better, but again, I wouldn't suggest you put it on your syllabus. Uh, you know, then we have uh, Clueless, which is an, not a bad adaptation of Emma. The, the list goes on and on. We, maybe you could uh, call in and uh, list your favorite of those adaptations. Uh, not to mention the spin-offs. A little bit later, we're going to hear the uh, part of the trailer to Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and I'll get your your take the on, greatest on that. Austin adaptation of all time. <laughs> Excellent. Let's talk about that. We have Brian McCuskey with us, Associate Professor of English at USU, and Maddie Burkert, Assistant Professor of English at USU. Hope to have you in the conversation as well. 800-826-1495 or uh, upraxcess at gmail.com. I'll uh, give you a quote from Mark Twain a little bit later. That could be a segue into uh, perhaps you want to call and bash Jane Austen. I can't imagine someone not liking Jane Austen. Mark Twain didn't. Um, More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Wasserman Festival presenting pianist Kevin Kenner performing works by Chopin and Paderewski on Wednesday, April 11th at 7.30 p.m. in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall. Tickets at arts.usu.edu. Hey, I'm Tom Power. When a loved one dies and leaves you an archive of their life's work, what do you do? Well, if your father was Johnny Cash, you call up some very talented friends and create something beautiful. You'll hear all about that from the people behind it. It's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. Today we continue our series, our favorite books. Today, Jane Austen. Some 200 years after her death, her novels are still widely read. Film adaptations regularly appear. Fans are enjoying such spin-offs as Lost in Austin and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. We're asking you uh, to uh, call in or email us. Tell us your favorite uh, Jane Austen uh, film or passage or book. And uh, your take on uh, Jane Austen, why the enduring popularity. We have with us in studio Maddie Burkert, Assistant Professor of English at USU, and Brian McCuskey, Associate Professor of English at uh, USU. Here's how you reach us, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com is our, uh, is our email. Uh, so 
During the break, we were thinking of some more adaptations. Bridget Jones' Diary. I'd forgotten that's a with Colin Firth. Yeah, and that's no accident. They cast Colin Firth in essentially the same role, the role adapted from Mr. Darcy for Bridget Jones's Diary. And so uh, exactly kind of playing off of the popularity of that 1995 BBC series. And uh, Becoming Jane is, is, uh, is, is, is treating her pr- private life, right? her personal life, as much as we know, right? It's having to invent quite a lot because <laughs> yeah. um, Jane Austen, we have the juvenilia, the, the sort of young teenage writings that she uh, self-published in her family. So we know some things about her life from those. We have a couple hundred letters that she wrote over the course of her life. But her sister, Cassandra, her older sister, who was her best friend and confidant, after Jane Austen died, Cassandra moved in and destroyed, um, I think it's as many as a couple thousand letters in order to keep Jane Austen's private life private. Mm. So we only have little kind of snippets here and there. There's a, maybe she was engaged for one night after in, until she called it off the next morning. Um, she seemed to have a flirtation with a, a, a young man by the name of Tom Lefroy when she was about 20. There's actually a great line, I have it here from her letter, where you can hear her making fun of her own love affair Mm. with this guy. Uh, She's writing to Cassandra, and she says, At length, the day is come on, on which I am to flirt my last with Tom Lefroy. And when you receive this letter, it will be over. My tears flow as I write with the melancholy idea. Mm. So she's putting herself into like a gothic novel, a, a romance plot here, but in a self-deprecating, self-mocking kind of way. Hmm. Uh, we could read uh, some more lines there of, of Jane Austen on herself. Well, uh, when she was, uh, or, or the letter before that, she's describing her behavior at a dance, and she says uh, to her sister again, imagine to yourself everything most profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together. Hmm. So she's well aware of the strictures uh, under which she's operating, right? 18th century uh, etiquette and and sort of what you can do and what you can't do and what's going to cause scandal and what's not. But it's also heavily ironized, even at this very young age. She's she's aware of how artificial and arbitrary all this is Mm -hmm. and that it's worth making fun of. Yeah. Is so, uh, Mighty Burkert, is this, she's very self aware. She, She does use irony. Um, even satirical at you know at at, at points, uh, is that part of her? What makes her modern? You know, she's two hundred years. It works at two hundred years old, but it a lot of it seems uh, appropriate for our times. Well, I think that's absolutely part of it, and irony is a, a huge part of sort of our collective um, social sense of humor with you know, the internet memes, all of that. It's all about having a heightened sense of irony. Um, and so I, I think it, it does fit with uh, our sensibilities today. And I also think, you know, in some ways, like many writers who we continue to read today, she argued for and fought for the conditions in which her work would be better received in the future than it was in its own time, because it wasn't that successful in its own time. But she worked very hard to promote the novel, which was not seen as a form that was in any way really respectable or high art in her time. It was largely seen as a form of mass popular culture. Um, she has a great moment in uh, Northanger Abbey, which I mentioned earlier, which is very satirical, to your point. Um, she mocks people who belittle novels. She says she's sort of in, their, in the voice of people who mock novels. She says that they say, oh, I am no novel reader. I seldom look into novels. Do not imagine that I often read novels. It is really very well for a novel. Such is the common cant. And what are you reading, Miss Oh, it is only a novel, replies the young lady while she lays down her book with affected indifference or momentary shame. It is only Cecilia or Camilla or Belinda or, in short, only some work in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed, in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature, the happiest delineation of its varieties, and the liveliest effusions of wit and humor are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language. Hmm. That's a great passage for English majors because, of course— the natural defensiveness of an English major. I'm. I'm. What are you majoring in? Oh, I'm. I'm only an English major. I'm. I'm only majoring in 
in English. Um, and Austin really turns that around and argues there and elsewhere in her work that novel reading and studying novels, taking them seriously, is the way that you understand human communities, is the way that you understand human psychology. And there's nothing more serious or important than reading a novel. And I think, oh, I think there's another dimension to this, too, which is that in her time, novels were associated primarily with young women. Young women were seen to be the target audience. And even if you listen to that passage, it's a young lady who's being imagined protesting that she's only reading a novel. The novels that she might be reading are Cecilia, Camilla, and Belinda, all female protagonists. They were all written by women authors. Cecilia and Camilla are by Frances Burney. Belinda is by Mariah Edgeworth. So... She's also defending a form that appeals to, is primarily targeted at, and often written by women. And so there's also something feminist to her defense of the novel. Hmm. Uh, she has a, a famous quote, which I think is a true quote. She, she talks about her works as opposed to other works as, as being a piece of ivory two inches wide. This little bit, two inches wide of ivory on which I work with so fine a brush as produces little effect after much labor. Mm -hmm. Well, don't believe that for a second. Um, she is well aware of the stakes of novel writing for women, for uh, the history of the genre. And so, but that's why we love Austin is that she's so ironically self-deprecating mm -hmm. that you have to read between the lines even when there are no lines to read between. Everything is slightly askew from what she's actually saying. Mm -hmm. If I could follow that up yeah. with a quote, um, her novels were receiving some praise at the time, but no one knew that she was writing them. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's this great moment when she's writing to one of her family members um, about the need to make money off of this, right? So she's thinking about herself as a professional writer, right? Not just a little artist off in the corner with her ivory. And she says, though I like praise as well as anybody, I like what Edward, her brother, calls pewter, too, so she's insistent that um, in the same way that she's taking a women's written genre um, and trying to make it serious, she's also trying to make herself into a, a new thing, a professional woman writer. Mm. And is, I guess that, you know, that speaks to our time as well, you know, maybe ahead of her time in, in that case. Yeah, she's very savvy. And again, we don't know as much as we would like to. She's extremely savvy about how she's trying to transform the novel, how she's trying to uh, transform herself as a writer, and, um, and, and the absurdity of trying to do all this at a time when the rules are, you know, sit down and, and shut up. Mm -hmm. I want to get into, uh, to, to have you both read some passages, but I want to uh, talk about how Austin is perceived today and, and a potential gender gap. And there, there's... I think there's some things to talk about there. Um, for example, if I'm in a, in a you know room full of friends, and I I say my you know, my favorite author is Jane Austen, then you know the, then a discussion ensues. Well, you're a man, so how can you know how can that how can that be? Because I think in in some you have people's to get minds some, you have to get some new friends, Tom. Have to get some new friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'll work on that. So, but let me preface this by by uh, let's let's play this uh, clip. Let's just play about a minute. This is two minutes long. Let's play about a minute of uh, of this this um, trailer for Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Um, and there's a lot of action going on. Not much dialogue, but you can you can picture zombies, and then you can picture. Um, you know, Regency-dressed young women, Elizabeth Bennet types, who are fighting zombies. Let's hear a bit of this, about a minute. It began with the Black Plague. Within weeks, the dead began to rise. This cannot be. Hunting for human flesh. Now, the few of us that are left have only one way to survive. We must bring the fight to them. I've been training for this my whole life. The fairest wifely choices be right here in this room. My daughters are trained for battle, sir. Not the kitchen. A woman to have a thorough knowledge of singing, dancing, and the art of war. And I 
Avenger. I shall never relinquish my sword for a ring. So there's a lot going on there. Um, his daughters are trained for singing, dancing, and uh, fighting. Right? This is this is. Um, we we've not. You won't find this in the novels, right? So, but what's what's or will you? Oh, I think you will. Okay. Yeah, uh, battle hardened young women abound in Austin. So uh, even even to keep talking about Elizabeth Bennett, because how can you not? Um, her her choice of of Darcy is not entirely uh, romantic. Uh, it is it is a practical choice, and she makes it clear that Pemberley, the estate he owns, is part of that decision. I think in the kind of cutthroat competition um, to end up well off and and well married, they are all very battle hardened. Mm. And there's actually, it's the same sort of thing where do you need to take a kind of uh, male action genre and transplant it back onto Austin in order to get um, a male audience to appreciate her? Jane Austen is way ahead of us, as always. She's writing um, in in another uh, piece she wrote when she was a teenager, a a very short one-page novel called The Beautiful Cassandra. The, The Beautiful Cassandra runs away from home and basically wrecks havoc across London. Here's, I'll read you chapter the fourth. Don't worry, it's only one sentence long. (laughs) She then proceeded to a pastry cook, where she devoured six ices, refused to pay for them, knocked down the pastry cook, and walked away. (laughs) So that kind of, you know, um, young women as action heroines is built into Austin from the very start. (laughs) But again, you have to be a little bit patient and read between the lines to see uh, the action that's that's taking place. Mm-hmm. There's there's one of the things I love about Austin is there is a lot going on, but you do have to kind of read between the lines, and it's it's a little bit below the surface, um, which which can produce a, a a wonderful tension. Yes, and Austin weaves back and forth in her narrative voice between objectively reporting what's happening. And then seamlessly sliding into the minds of her characters and giving you their perceptions from their points of view. This is one of the things that's so fun uh, for us to teach about Austin is you learn to read both socially, the stuff that's happening, and psychologically, the thoughts and feelings of the characters. So we have a couple of passages to illustrate what we mean by that. But it does mean you have to pay attention. Right. Maddie has a good one. I okay, let's hear yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is a, a narrative technique that Austin is sometimes credited with having uh, invented, the free indirect style or free indirect discourse, which we kind of take for granted now in, in novels to the point where we almost can't see it happening. So, for example, uh, Mr. Darcy danced only once with Mrs. Hurst and once with Ms. Bingley, declined being introduced to any other lady, and spent the rest of the evening in walking about the room, speaking occasionally to one of his own party. His character was decided. He was the proudest, most disagreeable man in the world, and everybody hoped he would never come there again. Mm-hmm. So it's an objective report mixed with uh, a subjective reflection of opinion, but that is given the kind of status of being in that um, third person style. So um, if a direct statement would be, I will stay here tomorrow, and an indirect statement would be, she said she would stay there the next day. um, This is like the equivalent of, well, they had another think coming if they didn't think she would stay here tomorrow as well. It's Mm. just blending the two. Mm. And there are no quotation marks in any of this. And so, as you said, Tom, you have to be very alert to what she's reporting uh, on the outside objectively and what she's, uh, the ways that she's allowing characters uh, to start speaking kind of in the text itself. Here's another example. This is also from Pride and Prejudice. It's right after Elizabeth has rejected Darcy and uh, is maybe already beginning to regret uh, this, this choice. The tumult of her mind was now painfully great. So there's Austin, right, just telling you something about Elizabeth. She knew not how to support herself and from actual weakness sat down and cried for half an hour. So a little more reporting. And then here you start to hear 
uh, Elizabeth's own voice. Her astonishment as she reflected on what had passed was increased by every review of it, that she should receive an offer of marriage from Mr. Darcy, that he should have been in love with her for so many months, so much in love as to wish to marry her, in spite of all of the objections which had made him prevent his friends marrying her sister, and which must appear at least with equal force in his own case, was almost incredible. So there's, again, no quotation marks. You just slide into Elizabeth's mind there, and you inhabit it for a paragraph, and then you slide back out, and the story continues. Mm. And it gives us this feeling of, of omnipotence, we th- or uh, omniscience. We think we know what all the characters are thinking, but she's very savvy, uses it very selectively. We don't get inside Darcy's head, really. You know, and you don't notice it until the end when you realize that you've never really known what he was thinking. So she's very selective about which characters heads she sort of drops into and out of um, to advance the narrative. And this is a part of her feminism, uh, even though it's a little early maybe to call it feminism in the sense that we mean. She is interested in representing for the first time women's thoughts and feelings, right? That it's not what the men think, right? We don't care what's going on in Mr. Darcy's head. We want to know what's going on in the minds of these young women. And again, that goes all the way back to her juvenilia, that same action uh, scene that I read you about the beautiful Cassandra. That novel ends with an equally short chapter. It goes like this. She returns home, by the way. She, she eventually you know, obeys the norms and goes home. She enters her, her house and was pressed to her mother's bosom by that worthy woman. Cassandra smiled and whispered to herself, this is a day well spent. And that moment of a woman whispering to herself and, you know, even asking the question, what do women whisper to themselves? What do they have going on in their minds? That is a radical way to end even a short novel like this one. But it's basically what Austin then spent the rest of her career looking at, Hmm. women whispering to themselves. What did, uh, this will be a good segue to ask this question, what did she mean in her time? Uh, I don't know how widely she was known. What did she mean in her time versus now well um she her some of her novels did meet with success on the market um not initially under her name um her popularity grew after her untimely death uh but she was also in her own time and in her own world and the novels often seem to be about this self-contained world of country estates, but they're very engaged with current events. Um, Mansfield Park is quite controversial for its invocation of the slave trade, and one of the characters owns a plantation. Um, Pride and Prejudice is very much in the context of the French Revolution and the concern about how do we, as as British people, find a way to avoid having something like the French Revolution. That is, how do we keep strife between the classes under wraps and it's to come up with these elaborate social codes where people who are some version of middle class and people who are some version of upper class can uh, get together and have balls and tea parties together and intermarry uh, and not end up having that kind of class strife. So she's in her time, absolutely, and and engaged with the world beyond the country estates. Mm. Which is more stuff you have to read between the lines to get because, of course, we don't have that kind of cultural context anymore when we're reading Austen. And so it's much easier to see just the romance plots of it and not to recognize that, you know, the history of England is at stake here in the marriage between Elizabeth and Darcy. If they don't get married, then the rising industrial middle class doesn't have a way of brokering power with the entrenched corrupt aristocracy. And if that doesn't happen, the guillotine is, you know, uh, uh, can't be far behind here. Mm-hmm. So when we teach Austin, that's one of the things that you have to kind of, you know, put in place around these novels to make them resonate historically as well as uh, as well as psychologically. I want to ask you. We talked about this a little before we went out there. I want to get a uh, response from each of you, starting with Brian McCuskey. What was your initial response as a young man? It was embarrassingly uh, hostile, I would say. In fact, my ninth grade self would be astonished that I was sitting here um, because I was given a copy of Pride and Prejudice in ninth grade. It had a kind of portrait, 18th century portrait of a lady on the cover. It looked like the least interesting book you could possibly have handed me. Um, and so I, I did what every future English professor does. I proceeded immediately to deface the cover, mm-hmm. to uh, put graffiti all over it, to mark up the, the, uh, the image there. 
But then in reading it, it became clear that, um, yes, this was about a different time. Yes, this was about um, young women, uh, which was not something that I knew anything about at the age of, of uh, 13 or 14. Um, but if you've ever walked into a high school cafeteria and wondered where you should sit, or as I did in ninth grade, worried that no one would let me sit anywhere, again, future English professor, mm. you had something in common with these characters, that they are navigating an extremely complex, subtle social world that uh, has a lot in common with an American high school. Mm. And so that's kind of how I got grabbed mm. by it. Before I go to you, uh, Matty Burkert, uh, Clueless is a, is a pretty good ad adaptation of, of Emma, set in high school, right? Right. And again, I think in tune with Austin's project of of um, saying, OK, we think. Most trivial of worlds, but here, let's let's get you invested in it. Let's show how its rules are really complicated, how it really matters for these people's developing sense of self um, to figure out how to navigate these situations. So I think very much in the, in keeping with the, the project of Austin. Yeah. What was, the, what was the first one you read? Can I ask? Yeah. I think I read Pride and Prejudice three or four times before mm -hmm. I'd read anything else. What was your, what was your initial reaction? You know, I can't actually remember the first couple of times I read Pride and Prejudice. I was, a uh, perhaps unsurprisingly an extremely voracious reader as a young, uh, as a child and as a teenager. Um, so I'm, I think I had read it maybe three or four times by the time that I read it my senior year of college in the context of a course on 18th century British women's writing, and it was towards the end of the course. And to see it in the context of what had come before it really opened up my eyes to how Austin is so invested in improving women's education. And I think that's where I really got interested was um, her problem with novels isn't, I mean, when, when she makes fun of Gothic novels at the same time that she's defending the novel, it's because she wants better kinds of reading material for young women. She wants them to have access to better kinds of learning. And so I think for me, that was when I really became interested in Austin was when I saw her in the context of the sort of proto-feminist and pro-education movements that had come in the decades before her. Mm -hmm. I don't know if English professors, do you read for pleasure? Is it all reading for class? That's you, our dirty you, little secret, Tom, you, you. is that's all we do. <laughs> we, we, that's our job is to read for pleasure. It's not the opposite of yeah. that. Yeah. Do you guys read Austin? Just, uh, you know, on the side. You teach Austin, but just sort of pick up a, an Austin book for pleasure? I tend to read mm. a chapter or I, it's been a while since I've actually read um, a whole Austin novel cover to cover. I tend to, you know, I, I remember a scene and think, oh yeah, how does that go? And I'll go back and mm -hmm. read something like that. Um, what blew my mind starting to teach Austin was reading her letters and reading some of the things around the canonical novels, the six that, that end up on the syllabus all the time, because that's when you really start to get a sense of this uh, authorial presence who's lurking between the lines and behind the scenes of these mm -hmm. novels, who's uh, as she describes herself in, in one letter, a wild beast. If I'm a wild beast, she says, I cannot help it. Mm. And that sense that there's a beast mode uh, <laughs> underneath the surface of, of this relatively um, apparently tranquil society mm. is the thing that, that keeps resonating with students, I think. Right. One, one thing that appeals to me, I, uh, I like to find Austin herself. I, mean, I don't know her that well. I haven't gone back and read the letters or anything, but I like to feel that I get to know her a little better, better through the through the novel. So if I'm reading Elizabeth in, in Pride and Prejudice, I, I like to think I'm getting a bit of Jane Austen. I think a lot of people have that response uh, to Austen. I think that's why the movie Becoming Jane exists, because um, people feel a real sense of intimacy with Jane Austen. That's why they call her Jane. <laughs> you know, I can't think of that many authors that uh, so many people feel on a first name basis with 200 years later. So I think that is really something people want. Um, but it, it's interesting because what we have left of Austin's life resists that uh, pretty, pretty strongly. And her siblings took great care to scrub the record and even changing the portraits of her to be more uh, conventionally beautiful. Mm. But they may actually have done us a favor in a way in, in, in that if Cassandra 
destroys all those letters, then Austin becomes kind of a blank slate. Yeah. Right. She, we can project the Austin we need at a given moment in our life onto that kind of empty um, picture of her. Do we need her? Do we need a savage satirical uh, eye? Then that's Jane Austen. Do we need more of a kind of uh, calm, stable sense of social order? Then that's the Austin that we need. Mm-hmm. So in um, in protecting her actual personal details, the the family may may actually have. Um, caused her 20th now 21st century popularity yeah. you could make the same case about shakespeare right that yeah. the, the less we know yeah, the just, more connected we can be just think about that that's an advantage i think for shakespeare I mean, in, our, in our world we can project because we don't know a whole lot yeah and it's interesting i mean some of the reasons we don't know a whole lot have to do with the fact that parts of the historical record disappear over time but there are contemporaries of his that we know a lot more about ben johnson was the one of the most successful playwrights at the same time as Shakespeare, yeah. the same generation. And we know so much more about Ben Jonson. So, um, yes, I think the, the enigma helps with the long-lasting popularity. Now, I'm, we do have a caller. Now I'm flashing on one of my other favorite authors, P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, he, he, in several of his works, um, pokes fun at the, the, the Baconists, right, the people who think Bacon was the, was the, was the author of all the plays. And uh, it's... Recommend uh, recommend Woodhouse uh, highly. Uh, we have, uh, I believe, Mary um, is Marion. Sorry, Marion is is on the line. Glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, thank you. Thanks for for taking the call. And what an enjoyable conversation about Jane Austen. I just had kind of a fun anecdote or example I wanted to share. I, I'm a fan of hers and inspired by her and by her books. But I also have a a, a close friend, a man who's a physicist. Um, he has kind of a, a high-powered job in the government, um, kind of high-powered science, very manly guy who tells me that about every 10 years he reads Sense and Sensibility because he just finds uh, like strength and inspiration from the character of Eleanor Dashwood. And I, I just love what that says about him as an individual, but also about Jane Austen and her capacity to reach all kinds of people. I just, it's, it's just a fun conversation today, and I thought I'd add that anecdote. Oh, thank you, Marion. By the way, what's what's your favorite? Oh, for heaven's sakes! <laughs> it's been a long time since I've read them, but uh, but I return to Sense and Sensibility for some of the same reasons. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you. That 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 is wonderful. Anecdote. Thanks for sharing. And I think yeah. That, thanks for the conversation. Yeah, I think that speaks to the way in which, in the end, if you really read Austen um, for more than nine minutes, or or do something more than watch. The wet t-shirt contest and the BBC production that the point of view here becomes um, genderless in certain ways that you you stop caring who's what gender or even who's what class that some of that melts away and you're just deep into the psychology of human beings as they navigate their their uh, their social world as they try to construct a stronger sense of self so it doesn't surprise me at all that a, a really manly physicist would yeah. fi- uh, find something in Eleanor to, to build on. That's what I, I, I think I, I resonate with that. That's one of the things I love about Austin. She she does have a good handle on psychology, especially the social interactions. It's it's the it's the feelings behind those interactions. I think she's got it right. Uh, let's hear before we uh, end here. We just have about three minutes left. Uh, we've spent the whole hour um, saying that it's not just the romance. But So this will kind of go against that a little bit, but I, I want to get this in. This is uh, a scene from Persuasion, and uh, this is near the end of the, of the book and the film. This is uh, Captain Wentworth uh, using what means he has. He writes a, a quick letter to Anne Elliot, um, pouring his heart out. Let's hear this. Mom, Captain Wentworth. I can listen no longer in silence. I must speak to you by such means as are within my reach. You pierce my soul. I am half agony, half hope. Tell me not that I am too late. That such precious feelings are gone forever. I offer myself to you again with a heart heart even more your own than when you almost almost broke broke it eight years and a half ago. ago. Dare not say that man forgets sooner than woman. 
that his love has an earlier death. I have loved none but you. Unjust I may have been, weak and resentful I have been, but never inconstant. You alone have brought me to Bath. For you alone, I think and plan. Have you not seen this? Can you fail to have understood my wishes? I had not waited for these ten days, but I have read your feelings. I must go, uncertain of my fate. I shall return and follow your party as soon as possible. A word. A word, a look will be enough to decide whether I enter your father's house this evening or never. So you pierce my soul. That's in a famous letter out there. Every woman, I imagine, wishes she received that. Every man wishes he'd written that. I'd settle um, for receiving it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, highly romantic, but the stakes are very high there. She, you know, she's 27 or something, right? She's nearing the end of, I guess, when she feels like she could eligibly be, uh, be married. Wentworth comes back and then it ends happily, but... Uh, yeah, most people take Anne to be Anne Elliot to be as close to a surrogate for Austin as as you can get. That she um, is getting on in life. She missed out on some early love affairs, and now she's pretty much resigned to being unmarried. And this guy who got away years ago comes back, and it's the story of their kind of belated love affair. And you've earned, I mean, you've earned that romance by then. Mm-hmm. I think if it is the most, I think the most romantic scene in Austin. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Sir Walter is, is one of the great characters. He's, uh, this is um, Austin at, at, at a high satirical state, right? Yeah, he's... W- with him, all he cares about is his appearance and his social standing. Yes, if there's a, if there's a good reason for a guillotine in Jane Austen, it would be this uh, sort of fading pseudo-aristocrat. Yeah. Um, and so the reason we need more Darcy's is to get rid of all of these um, Sir Walters. Yeah. Um, Maddie Burkard, give you the last word. What, uh, what, what would you, just 30 seconds, what would you tell us about, uh, this is unfair, 30 seconds, what would you tell us about Jane Austen here at the end? Uh, I think read her with an eye to what she is saying in between the lines, like we've been saying, uh, what she is when, when there are soldiers stationed in a nearby town, it's not just that there are handsome soldiers. Why, why are there soldiers? Why is the country at war? Mm. Excellent. Uh, that's a good place to leave it. We've been talking with Maddie Burkert, assistant professor of English at USU and Brian McCuskey, associate professor of English at USU. Our series, uh, our favorite books, Jane Austen, and you can suggest the next in our series uh, by our email, upraxis at gmail.com. Thanks for listening today. Here at the end of the program, we uh, have an email from Allison. Allison says, uh, I read all the Jane Austen novels in college for fun about 12 years ago. Besides Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, one of my favorites is Lady Susan. Unlike most books, she isn't the protagonist. She's the antagonist. She's despicable, and it's always very entertaining to read uh, her about her plotting and manipulations and to see her get what was coming to her all along. I also loved Austin Land by Shannon Hale and its movie. I enjoyed the Lizzie Bennet Diaries on YouTube a few years ago. I also loved Persuasion. And Allison says, I think what connects people to Austin today are a few different things. Character development. It's hard to find modern books that satiate the same reading niche that have well-developed characters. The irony, her ability to capture human nature. I have a sister-in-law who loathes Austin, she says. I think it's to be counterculture, but I really think it's because she doesn't get it. It takes about 100 pages to get into the rhythm of an Austin novel. Thanks for that.